I've spent 30 hours in 2022 speaking to psychology experts. Now, they've taught me how to change someone's mind, what I'll regret as I get old, and why I shouldn't worry about how others view me. These experts have spent their careers analysing how the brain works, and they've shared some genuinely mind-bending insight into how all of us make decisions. Today, I take a look back at all of the Nudge episodes published in 2022 and share the very best bits of advice that I've heard. But first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's kick off with one of the best lessons I learned this year. Now, all of you listening have probably needed to change someone's mind at some point. We all do, whether that's in a professional setting or a personal setting. Realistically, you probably have to change someone's mind at least a few times a week. So how do you do it? What strategy do you take? In fact, do you have a strategy? Do you have any tactics? Or do you just say the first thing that pops into your head? Because that's what I used to do. I simply said the first thing I thought of, and it wasn't very effective. I really struggled to ever change someone's mind. That was until earlier this year when I read Polls Apart. In the book, authors Laura Osborne, Alex Chesterfield, and Alison Goldsworthy talk about the science behind changing someone's mind. This book was a real eye-opener for me because it went against a lot of the assumptions I had about the best ways to change someone's mind. See, previously, I thought the best way to change someone's mind was to just share facts, to give cold, hard evidence on why their opinion is wrong or, or maybe why their opinion is misguided. I assumed that by sharing facts, I would enlighten the individual and change their mind. But it turns out that doesn't work. Here's why. We might think that getting new information on new facts will lead us to change our minds or update our beliefs, um, but it often often doesn't. And I think we can most we often most see this when people use facts to try and change other people's minds. Um, and there is a really illuminating set of studies that we talk about in the book, which illustrates I think this tension between what we think facts do or the power of facts and and and, uh, and reality so in these studies i think there were seven of them conducted in the u.s um by an academic called daniel hopkins at um i think it was pennsylvania george washington and uh university of california berkeley but they were they were investigating whether correcting americans misperceptions on immigrants would change their attitudes so would giving people facts on the numbers of immigrants, would that actually change their attitudes or you know, opinions, or views, whatever you want to call it, towards immigrants? And like many different nations, America is definitely not unique in this way, but Americans are prone to exaggerate the size of the immigrant uh, population and the size of many minority groups. So many countries were all kind of guilty of this. And they're often linked to more unfavorable perceptions of, uh, or unfavorable views of immigration. So it seems logical 
to think, well, if people are hostile to immigrants and they think that there's many more immigrants, let's give people facts, you know, correct, accurate information about how many immigrants there actually are. Um, surely then people will actually change their views or you know, update their beliefs accordingly. But that's not what the researchers found. So they randomly assigned accurate information about immigrant uh, numbers and then inaccurate information uh, to participants in the study. And they found that uh, providing accurate facts and figures did have an impact on people's knowledge. Yay, no celebration. <laughs> but that the new knowledge had no knock-on effect on people's attitudes, even among those who discovered that their previous assumptions were widely out of kilter with reality. So even when you know, well, I thought, you know, 40% of the population were immigrants, even when you know you were wrong, that didn't affect people's um, underlying beliefs. So what this suggests is that facts, in not in all cases, but in don't, some cases, many cases, don't form opinions as much as we might like to believe. Rather, opinions or our views come first and then we interpret facts in line with what we already believe. It's fascinating, right? The study shows that facts simply don't change opinions. See, the problem is people often form opinions about what they believe to be facts. But sometimes these facts aren't correct. For example, British people overestimate the immigrant population in the UK by 54%. And as such, many people develop anti-immigrant views. They believe that there are too many immigrants and they reference their incorrect information, that incorrect fact, to justify this view. Now, you might expect that if you share the correct information about immigrants, the real percentage of immigrants in the population, that these people would change their minds immediately. But that won't change minds. Even when you correct people with accurate facts, these people didn't change their opinions in the studies that Alex and Laura shared. As Alex Chesterfield said in that clip, facts do not form opinions or shape opinions. Our opinions and belief come first, then we find facts, or what we believe to be facts, to back up these opinions. This is a crucial point for folks to remember, especially people who have to change opinions for a living. Bombarding your audience with facts won't change views. Instead, you have to use other tactics to change their opinions first. I can't begin to remember all the times I've tried to change someone's mind by listing off facts, you know, data. I've tried this hundreds of times, but now I know that that just won't work. Since that podcast was recorded, I've started using another tactic. I've started asking questions. I'll ask someone to explain their point of view, to walk through why they feel that way, and to be inquisitive about why they think what they think. This is what the authors suggest in Poles Apart. And weirdly, sort of irrationally, this is a much better tactic to change minds. It puts people in an open mindset and encourages them to be inquisitive about their own views and to listen to other opinions. All right, that's tactics to change minds. Let's switch and go to another bit of advice I've heard this year, which is strategies to sell more champagne. So this is my next favorite lesson from 2022, and it comes from Harry Dry, the fantastic marketer behind the website marketingexamples.com. He talked to me about Bobob Ricard, a restaurant in Soho, London. This restaurant is unique for one reason. It has a press for champagne button on every table. You press it, and the waiter will bring over champagne immediately. This may seem like a fairly childish, simple idea, yet Bob Ricard sells more champagne than any other restaurant in London. 
I asked Harry why. This is one of my favorite examples I've, I've ever come across. And I got to credit Richard Shotton where I, I found it on his, I think Richard Shotton, by the way, is unbelievably good at what he does. I think he's unbelievably good. I think he's pound for pound, probably maybe the best I, I learned from. Um, why does it work so well? I think firstly, it's the power of removing friction. So instead of doing that to the waiter, hand up, can we have some champagne? Strip that away. But I think more than that, it's also a novelty. It's zigging when everybody zags. If there's a pressure champagne button, you want to press it. You want to press it. We're all kids, aren't we? We want to press it. You can't ever press the champagne buttons in no other restaurant around the world and sit there and eat your meal and not press it. That's sad. So they're just playing on this whole novelty that which they've created. I think it's utterly genius. I really do. If I go to that restaurant, I would never in I would never order champagne in any other restaurant. But if I go to Bob Bob Rickard, I'm pressing the button a couple of times. And if I'm on a date, I'll, she's pressing the button as well. You can't not press it. I think that it shows to me the like the power of creativity in marketing. I think that often we can get into like sucked into numbers and all that's important. But one little novel idea like that can make you a couple of million pounds, probably more for them over, over the course of their their lifetime. Um, and how do you come up with those ideas? I think the way, like, how do you come up with an idea like that? I think I think for me, it's it's an environment where people are happy to say the wrong thing. So if I'm in a job or if I'm talking to my brother, if I'm talking to my brother, we can mess around and come up with a load of shit ideas to come up with one good one. If I'm in a job where the, where the culture's like, you got to be right, you're, no one's going to say that because it's just, you're going to get laughed at. you got to go through nine or 10 bad ones to, to, get, to get the right one. And finally, brevity, press for champagne, it's simple. Three words. Three words is the perfect number if you want somebody to do something, I think. The Bob Bricard example is a brilliant application of the make it easy part of the East framework, which was created by the Behavioral Insights team. So a lot of stuff in there, but basically what they're doing is making it easier. They are simply removing friction and that encourages action. Rather than having to ask a waiter, call over a waiter to get champagne, you just press a button. Rather than having to think about what you want to order, you just press a button for champagne. The renowned behavioural scientist and Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman says there are two ways to think about behaviour change. You can either push down on the accelerator, essentially get someone to take an action, or you can remove the handbrake so you don't need to take any action. Kahneman says it is always better to do the latter. Removing friction always beats asking for action. Two other researchers, Bergman and Rogers, tested this in a study where parents were asked to sign up to a texting service that sent fortnightly messages with tips on how to get their child to revise. This is something that most parents would want tips on. They would probably want to learn better tips on how to get children to revise, especially during the sort of busy study period. In the first variant of the experiment, the message asked parents to sign up. They had to opt in, and very few did. Only 1% did. In the second variant of the experiment, and this was sent to another group, they auto-enrolled parents and they asked them to text back with the word stop to unenroll. In this example, 93% of the parents stayed signed up. Removing friction, it works. Now, I don't think everyone should be auto-enrolling people, but the basic premise here is that removing friction works. But the reason that I love this example from Bob Bricard isn't just because it reduces friction. It also helps the restaurant stand out too. 
It makes the restaurant distinct in our minds, and because it's distinct, we're more likely to remember it. This is known as the von Restorff effect, or the contrast effect, and we've spoken about it before on the show. It basically means that distinct elements are more memorable. And no one knows this more, surprisingly, than Duolingo. Yep, Duolingo, the language learning app. Now, Duolingo actually uses distinctiveness all the time to help you and its users learn a language. If you used Duolingo before, you will have almost certainly seen this in action, even if you haven't realized why they do it. Duolingo uses distinctiveness deliberately by sharing some basically nonsensical sentences in their lessons. Cindy Blanco, who's a learning scientist there, explained that when there's a conflict between you and your expectations and the reality, that triggers responses in the brain. She said that this conflict forces you to pay attention and to be more careful about what you're seeing. For example, Duolingo will use sentences like, the bride is a woman and the groom is a dot dot dot, and your brain is likely to fill in the word man. So the actual word that Duolingo uses is a surprise. They say the groom is a hedgehog. And this works because you're forced to pay extra attention to the sentence and thus you'll be more likely to remember it. Because that sentence is in the language you're learning, you'll be more likely to remember the words and how it's phrased in that language. So if you want something to be remembered, break someone's expectations and share something distinct. In a way, just like Bob Bricard have done with their press for champagne button. Okay, let's move on to lesson three. This lesson came from Vanessa Bonds, the brilliant researcher who I interviewed earlier this year. She shared how we underestimate how much other people like us. See, many of us naturally assume that other people don't like our company very much. We have this bias that means we underestimate others' opinions of us. We are naturally inclined to think that others don't like us, when in reality, they do. Here's Vanessa explaining why that is. So many of us leave conversations thinking, you know, did I talk too much or not enough? Did I ask enough questions? Uh, maybe I shouldn't have brought up that topic. And we kind of do this post-mortem as we leave a conversation where we focus on all the negatives, on all the slips that we might have made and all the things that we feel like we must have done wrong that would make that person really not like us in that conversation. When in fact, people are not as hard on us as we tend to be on ourselves. And we know this because of another behavioral phenomenon called the liking gap. And what the liking gap is, is basically this tendency to underestimate how much a conversation partner enjoyed our conversation and liked us coming out of that conversation. And the way researchers have tested this is they've had people interact in conversations that range from just really brief interactions to longer, you know, 10, 30 minute conversations. And then they've had those two people who just interacted go into separate rooms and fill out surveys. And they asked those people, how much do you think that other person you just had a conversation with enjoyed that conversation? How much do you think they liked you in that conversation? And then they ask, how much did you like the other person? And when they compare these judgments, what they find is that on average, 
people tend to underestimate how much the other person liked them and enjoyed the conversation. So there tend to be differences when we think about how much we enjoyed that conversation compared to how much we think the other person did. When we think about that other person, we're really just thinking about that warm, friendly conversation we had. So we're thinking of it in more of an emotional kind of broad sweep kind of way. And so we get this disconnect where we're judging ourselves based on these specific things that we said, but we're judging the other person based on warmth and friendliness. And we forget that that's also how they're judging us, not based on these tiny little things that we might have said wrong. The study Vanessa references actually puts a number on the likability gap. In the study, participants rated how much they liked their conversation partner. This rating was 12.5% higher than how much they thought their participant would like them. So just to reiterate that, 12.5% higher. People liked other people 12.5% higher than they thought they would like themselves. And this was consistent across all of the participants. This was the average. So we underestimate how much we are liked by 12.5% on average. And in follow-up studies, the researchers allowed participants to chat for as long as 45 minutes to see if the liking gap persisted for even longer conversations. And it turns out it does. Whether you're chatting with someone briefly in line for the supermarket or trying to fill a full 30-minute conversation of professional chatter with a colleague, the person you're talking to will typically walk away from that conversation liking you more than you think. This is vital advice and it's worth remembering because it will help you in social interactions. Hopefully it will help you balance this natural negativity that we have with the actual positivity that people have towards you. All right, so far we've looked at how facts don't change opinions, how distinctiveness helps you remember a language and how we underestimate how others view us. After this quick break, we'll get into two more lessons I've learned, including why you should go first in a pitch and what we'll regret when we're older. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Now, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? You've probably heard this classic saying, if you're like me, you probably assumed that there was no right answer, that it didn't really matter what you shared first. But Caitlin Borgoyne, a guest that I've had on this show, she says otherwise. She walked me through the recency bias and explained that if you want something to be remembered, you should share it last. So if you want someone to remember the good news, then share it at the end. Here's Caitlin explaining the bias. 
Sure. So the recency bias, there were a number of studies that have looked at this, but it especially applies to when we are consuming uh, information kind of in a sequential order. So the idea behind the recency bias is we are more likely to remember the most recent information that we heard, and we'll often forget the earlier details um, with the exception of kind of the first thing we heard. So let's say that you were to go to a conference and at that conference, you you were to watch, you know, 10 speakers and all of them were good. Um, but the chances are that you're going to remember the one that you saw at the end and the one that came at the beginning more than perhaps the ones in the middle, assuming that they're all a you know, about the same in terms of like the quality of their content. So where might this apply in a business context? Let's say that you're in a meeting, you know, a Zoom call with your team, there's eight people on the call and somebody asks for a recommendation on which email software your team should be using and why. And everybody goes around the room and kind of shares the one that they think is going to be the best. Chances are the person who's trying to consume all that information, decide which one to go and look up next, they're going to remember the last one mentioned. And so when they go to Google, they're going to put in the one that they heard last. It's just going to probably stand out to them more. Again, assuming that all of the information was shared kind of in a similar fashion. There wasn't one that really stood out and spoke to them. So, you know, it makes sense. Like we, our brains can't contain everything that's thrown at us in the run of a day. And so we need to get better at taking shortcuts to the stuff that matters. And when presented with a list of information, everything's kind of seemingly the same. We're, we're more likely to remember the last thing we heard. Works great when you're thinking about um, contacts where you're going to need to present information. You don't want to be in the middle. You want to either be the first one to present and you want to kind of like set the bar high at the beginning, or you want to be the last one to present because being in the middle can often be the place where everything's blurred out and maybe your ideas don't make it through to decision makers. The recency bias suggests that when we're presented with information, we don't weigh it all evenly. Instead, we give heavy preference to the last thing we heard. A classic example of the recency bias comes from an analysis of court cases and verdicts. Studies show that information presented later in the trial has a much higher likelihood of swaying the verdict than information presented early on. This is why lawyers put so much effort into crafting that perfect closing statement. Your customers do the same as the jurors in this case. They will store recent details first in their memory. So deciding how you present information can have a huge impact on how your customers make decisions. There's one real eye-opening study that shows how the recency bias can change what we buy. The study was cited in the brilliant newsletter Airy, which I really recommend everyone goes and signs up to. The study involved sending customers a high-quality copy of a handwritten note to thank them for their purchase. So these are people who had bought from a brand and then they got this high-quality handwritten note to say thank you. This meant that the customer's last interaction, their most recent interaction with the brand, wasn't just receiving the goods or service, it was a handwritten note to thank them. And it turns out receiving this handwritten note can make customers much more likely to buy again. The study revealed that a handwritten thank you note or even a photocopy of a handwritten thank you note, increases future customer spending. 
The study focused on notes in e-commerce deliveries, but other research suggests that the effect extends to service content too, like hotels and restaurants. And I think a lot of Robert Cialdini's work on the reciprocity bias shows this as well. This study was conducted with a South Korean online beauty retailer, and in the study they tested different types of notes on 1,232 customers, and then they analysed their future spending. People that received no note spent on average $25.97 in the future. Those that received the photocopy of a handwritten note spent $52.07 in the future, double the amount of those who received no thank you note. And those who received an original handwritten note, so no photocopying here, spent actually a similar amount to those who received the photocopy. So photocopying a handwritten thank you note, that's an okay thing to do. The takeaway here is kind of amazing. Customers that received a handwritten note, even a photocopy, spent two times more than those who received no note. It shows that people change their purchasing decision behavior based on the most recent interaction they had with the company. So think carefully about the final moments you have with a customer. Now, that is great advice for those of you in business, great advice for those of you in marketing, or perhaps those of you who are just trying to persuade and influence others. But here, next up, is a lesson that I think is important for all of us to remember. And it's from New York Times bestselling author Dan Pink. In this interview, Dan was walking through regret, how it works, and why we experience regret. It was a real eye-opening conversation, but the most interesting takeaway for me was how regret changes as we get older, and specifically how Dan has identified one thing that all of us will regret as we get old. Here's Dan talking through his studies on regret and what he found. When you break down the regrets by age, what you see is people in their 20s have about equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. But people in their 30s have more inaction regrets than action regrets. People in their 40s have way more inaction regrets than action regrets. People in their 50s, 60s, 70s, it's not even close. It's two to one, often three to one ratio of inaction regrets versus action regrets. And I think that tells us something. Now, let's try to understand what's going on here. Again, I can, for your audience, I'm willing to get into the wheeze just a tiny little bit. Why is that the case? Why is it that people have more inaction regrets than action regrets as they get older? I don't think we know for sure, but I think we can make some plausible guesses here. One of them is that um, certain kinds of action regrets you can address, you can undo, you can do something about, you can mitigate. So I have people who were bullies, regret being bullies, who will go back to the people they bullied and apologize. If you have cheated somebody, you can make them whole. Uh, If you go get a tattoo and you regret getting the tattoo, you can have the tattoo removed. So certain kinds of action regrets we can address, we can undo. What's more, we can take the psychological sting out of some action regrets by looking for the silver lining in them. So again, in the World Regret Survey, I have a lot of people, I think it's, I mean, it's got to be like 99% women who say, oh, my big regret is that I married that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. So they find a benefit. They find a silver lining in it. You can't undo an inaction regret. It's metaphysically impossible. You can't 
find a silver lining in it. It's hard to find a silver lining in it. And so these inaction regrets stick with us for a very long time. Now, what is what lesson does that yield? I think, Phil, the lesson is that we should have in our lives at least a slight bias for action. I don't think that we should take every risk, but I think that the evidence is that we should have at least a slight bias for action. That a lot of times when we resist acting, we are buying emotional insurance that we don't need. We regret inaction over action. In general, we should try to act rather than sticking with the status quo. We should reach out to that old friend and not leave it. We should try cooking a new dish rather than sticking with what we know. We should holiday in a new location rather than the same old resort. Studies suggest that this will leave us with less regret as we age. There's one wonderful application of this from a study in the States. I've shared it in Nudge earlier in the year, but it is worth resharing. The study, which is cited in Dan's book, The Power of Regret, examined the answers on more than 1,500 multiple-choice psychology exams taken by students at the University of Illinois. They found that students who switched their answers in the test, so who put down an answer and then went back to it and actually changed, those who switched were more likely to switch to the right answer. You You had a better chance of picking the right answer if you went back on your gut decision. So if you're actually going through a test and you've given your first answer, your gut decision, if you think it should possibly be changed and you go back and look at it, you probably should because you're more likely to be right if you switch your answer. Action, which in this case is changing the answer, beats inaction. Here's what's really interesting though. When researchers asked the students which they would anticipate regretting more, switching when I should have stuck or sticking when I should have switched, so what will you regret more, sticking or switching? 74% of those students anticipated more regret from switching answers, from changing their gut decisions. In other words, it showed this bias for inaction. We are wired to think that changing from our gut decision is the wrong thing to do, that we should always stick to our initial judgment. Yet science shows otherwise. Being flexible, being open to change, it'll leave you happier with fewer regrets and almost certainly higher exam scores. Now, this is a special end of year show, so I'm going to finish up ending with something a little different. I have loads of feedback from lots of you asking for book recommendations this year, so I thought I'd share three recommendations of some of the best behavioural science-ish books that I've read this year. I say behavioural science-ish because some of them aren't specifically in the behavioural science category, but they all contain bits of information that I found extremely useful and I found to really relate to behavioural science. So book recommendation number one is a book called Wanting by Luke Burgess. In Wanting, Luke Burgess walks through the concept of mimetic desire. This was first identified by René Girard, and mimetic desire is this idea that humans do not spontaneously want things out of a sort of inner chamber of authentic desire, but instead humans desire things through the imitation of someone else. The author explains how most of the desires we have in our lives aren't developed through critical thought or internal values, but through models. Now, these aren't models in the literal sense, so, you know, catwalk models. These are basically models that can be celebrities or friends or even rivals. They're people we interact with or people we admire. And models can change objects before our very eyes. They can make us desire them or maybe not desire them. 
Here's an example that Luke Burgess gives in the book. You walk into the store with a friend and you see racks filled with hundreds of shirts. Nothing jumps out of you. But the moment your friend becomes enamoured with one specific shirt, it's no longer another shirt on the rack, it's the shirt that your friend wants. The moment she starts desiring the shirt, she sets it apart in your mind. It's a different shirt than five seconds ago and before she started wanting it. It might make you want it more or make you want it less depending on your relationship with the friend. But regardless, the friend has changed the shirt in your mind. Now, the basic idea in wanting links back to social proof and herd mentality, but it takes the concept much further. If you want to understand why you take the decisions you take, it'd be worth reading this book because it shows you not only you know what shirts you purchase at a store, but how the majority of your major life decisions can be based on mimetic desire and how you're influenced by others. Book recommendation number two is How to Change by Katie Milkman. In this book, researcher Katie Milkman walks through how habits form and how to change these habits. It's a really easy to read, accessible book that makes the complex world of habits, I think, quite simple to understand. There's heaps of great insights in the book, lots of really good stuff on habits, but one study that really stood out was about social norms. The 2006 study sent 20,000 Michigan residents a strange letter in the mail. At first glance, these letters just looked like another plea from a political canvasser to vote in the upcoming primary election. But on closer inspection, these letters were surprisingly personal. I think so personal that definitely a lot of the people listening will be shocked to hear what they included. Each recipient saw a list of the recent elections they had voted in and the elections they had skipped, so whether they voted or whether they didn't. Alongside it was a report of the turnout decisions of each of their neighbours as well, so you saw whether your neighbours voted or didn't vote too. Now, they didn't show people how you voted or how your neighbour voted, but they showed if you voted. Not only did the letters display personal voting records, they promised to release updated data to everyone in your community after the election day. The message basically said, vote or be outed to your neighbours as a non-voter. Now, I think this is a little bit intense, but listen to the impact it had. Now, for the experiment, people received different types of mail to, to test whether this really worked and to test if it had an effect. So some of the prospective voters received no mail at all and others received a boilerplate voting reminder. And that was basically the control. The remaining households were subject to sort of varying degrees of social pressure to turn out on election day. The mailing that revealed the voting histories of everyone in a given neighbourhood, that was the most extreme, but there was a slightly toned down version which showed the voting histories of everyone who lived in the same house, but not the neighbours, while a third version simply explained that the researchers were running a study and would check if you had voted. Here's what happened. The simple reminder, the control sort of message, that increased turnout by two percentage points versus not receiving any mail at all. And that's quite a big deal in a low turnout or close election, two percentage points. But the action really started to happen when they were told that the data would be shared and that they would be accountable for whether they voted or not. Among those who were warned that everyone who lived in their house would find out whether they voted, turnout increased by 4.9 percentage points. And when the idea of being reported on to your neighbours was introduced, things got truly extreme. This one letter that promised to reveal the voting records to everyone in your neighbourhood produced an 8.1% increase in turnout, an 8.1% increase in turnout, versus just two percentage points for the simple reminder. 
Katie Milkman declared that no other junk mail campaign has, has ever generated nearly as large an increase in voting. It's one of the best examples of the watched eyes effect. When you know you're being watched, your behaviour changes dramatically. In the UK, there's sort of this ongoing debate about making voting mandatory. And reflecting on this research, I think that's a little too black and white. Instead of making it mandatory, you could just simply make someone's voting history publicly available, as that really is enough to encourage millions more to head to the polling station. Anyway, How to Change is a cracking book and definitely worth picking up if you're interested in behaviour change. And my final book recommendation is, is from a book actually written back in 1992. It's called Irrationality by Stuart Sutherland. In the book, Sutherland walks through many of the behavioural science concepts that you'll know, but he shares them in a bit of a new light. One of my favourite parts of this book highlights why it is so important for people to learn about behavioural science concepts. The author, Sutherland, shares a study which analysed the decisions made by 126 professors at the University of Michigan. The professors were interviewed and asked a bunch of questions over the phone. The goal was to determine whether or not the professors were making rational decisions, like, for example, leaving a bad movie in the theatre if they weren't enjoying it, so getting up and leaving a movie if they weren't enjoying it, or buying the bottle of wine they prefer regardless of how the menu presented the choice and the anchoring and the choice architecture at play. The researchers found that the better the professors were at correctly answering the questions about heuristics and biases, like the sunk cost questions, the higher their salaries were. Essentially, those who knew about these biases seemed to be paid more. Now, this might be expected of economists, since their work depends to some extent on their knowledge of theories and prescribing how to take the best decisions. But the finding was equally true for professors in the arts subjects as well. So maybe it just suggests that, you know, more knowledge equals higher pay. But then the investigators also examined how far the subjects took rational decisions in their ordinary life. For example, they asked each whether in the last five years they have ever actually left a movie before it finished. Now, the sunk cost principle means that most of us feel an irrational urge to keep watching a bad movie. But if we understand sunk costs, we should be able to resist the urge and actually leave the theatre if the movie's bad. Given the number of bad movies on show, most people are probably likely to see at least one bad movie in five years. People who are aware of the sunk cost trap will probably get up and leave versus those who don't know about the sunk cost trap who will probably see the film out. And the researchers found that twice as many economists said they had left a movie compared to the professors of biology or arts. In other words, economists who are presumably no cleverer than other professors, but whose subject gives them a better knowledge of behavioural science, acted more rationally, at least in some aspects of their everyday life. Stuart Sutherland says that this appears to be direct evidence that a knowledge of the theory of decision-making can actually improve the rationality of ordinary decisions. In other words, studying and understanding behavioural science can help you make better decisions. Now, of course, this study is a bit of a leap. Not all economic professors behave rationally. But next time you're watching a bad movie and you're debating whether to leave, think about the sunk cost fallacy and urge yourself to say that staying is purely irrational. It might encourage you to get up and do something better with your time. All right, folks, that is all for today and all for Nudge this year. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened to the show over the last year. It's been quite a year for the show. When the year started, I think we were getting around 2,000 downloads a week. The show is now getting around 15,000 downloads a week. 
Nudge has also been top of the UK marketing charts consistently, I think, for about 12 weeks this year. And it reached second in the overall business charts in the UK too, which is, you know, astonishing. So thank you all for tuning in. The more all of you listen, the more time I can invest in the show and the better I can make future episodes. The plan next year is to keep improving. I want to keep raising the standard of each episode, doing more deep dive research projects on influential people and specific behavioral science concepts. I want to get better and better guests with better research and eye-opening stories. And I plan to keep publishing weekly episodes with potentially even the occasional bonus show as well. There is one major change I'm making to the show. I have actually started to charge for the Science of Marketing course. Many of you have taken that when it was available for free. And up until recently, it has been available for free. But after two years of making it available at no cost, I reckon it was time to start charging. So if you are keen to take the course, just be aware of that. You can still take it. You go to nudgepodcast.com and click courses. Uh, If you pay for it now, you will get full lifetime access to the course as well. Previously, you had to complete it within 30 days. So hopefully that's a big benefit. And I think that is all for the podcast news. As always, thank you so much for listening to the show. Please do go and sign up to the newsletter and leave some reviews for the show as well. I really appreciate it when you do that. And let me know if you have any feedback or suggestions for the show. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there or on Twitter. I'm P underscore Agnew there. That's P underscore A-G-N-E-W. I respond to every message I get. So please do let me know what you think. Cheers again, folks. I really appreciate your support this year and I will see you all again next year.